Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Well, good morning. All of you who are underdog fans of college football, you had to love yesterday with five out of the eight falling. And our team won, so that makes it even better, right? All right. I know my team lost. I'm an Oregon Duck fan. For those of you who don't know, my team started the fall of the top people this week. But hey, we're starting a new series today called Coached by the Greats, uh, Whiteboard Lessons from History's Game Changers. And, and before we jump into today's message, I want to talk a little bit about what you're going to gain from this series. You're going to gain a number of things. You're going to gain an answer to the question, is the Bible primarily about you and how you should live? Or is the Bible primarily about Jesus and the good news of his love? And we're going to illustrate that because it's really important to understand the answer to that question because it helps us understand the Bible. And so often our misunderstanding of the Bible is because we don't understand that. It's also going to show us how the Old Testament and New Testaments are really one story. And it's going to make the Old Testament for you make a whole lot more sense to you. And it's, we're going to learn so along the way, we're going to learn some lessons about living uh, in faith in a way that makes a difference, makes our lives make a difference, makes it make a difference for the growth of our own lives. And we're going to get a deeper appreciation and experience, I think, through this time of how much God loves us, how patient he is with us, how kind he is, and how powerful he is and wants to be in our life and how close he is to our daily lives. Now, I grew up playing sports pretty much every minute I had outside of sleeping, eating, and working and going to school. I mean, that was all you could do in Keister, Minnesota. There wasn't anything else to do growing up. And all throughout my life, I've enjoyed uh, and really admired great coaches, even the coaches that I don't like to cheer for their teams, like Coach K or uh, John Wooden or Tom Landry or Vince Lombardi or Dean Smith or Nick Saban or Bill Belichick. I don't like to cheer for their teams, but I really admire them as coaches. In fact, I have to admit, if I were in a game and I needed some really good coaching at a pivotal point, I would want one of them to step into my huddle with a whiteboard and give me the lesson. And I would be all ears, even though I don't like cheering for their teams. Now, one common metaphor in life that we've all experienced is that life is a race. Life is a game. We've all experienced that metaphor. In fact, the Bible even uses that metaphor in Hebrews 11 and 12. It talks about life as a race. And Hebrews 11 is this chapter that we've nicknamed in Christian circles the the, the heroes of faith chapter. And it begins with a famously quoted statement that says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then it goes on to list a whole bunch of names, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and David and uh, just so many others. And it goes on to enumerate how these people were such great people of faith. And and frankly, they really are. I mean, think about it. 3.8 billion of the people on today's planet out of the 7.3 billion people all laud these people as great people. That's pretty great indeed. Not very many people are known or revered by that many people in all of history. Hebrews goes on to describe these people as people who accomplished great military or political or spiritual feats, or they describe them as the people who were um, cast out and persecuted for standing up for what is right. And they even describe some of the people of the greats as ordinary moms who had faith for their children. 
It takes us from the halls of palaces to the inner courts of the temple to the persecuted outcasts to the ordinary mom and dad raising a family and describes people of great faith in all of those categories and says this. It says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And then we get to the core verse of our series, which is Hebrews 12, verse 1, and it starts off reading this way. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. That's a really interesting metaphor. It describes all of the people who have gone before us, all the greats of faith, all the people who have gone before us as this great cloud of witnesses looking down on us, cheering for us in this stadium of life. And to me, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty motivating and encouraging picture to think about all these greats throughout history, all these people of faith cheering for you and I. And the question of this whole series is going to be this. What if some of these greats could come out of that cloud of witnesses, come out of the stands, come down into the huddle with us in a pivotal moment of life and give us a key whiteboard lesson to help us run this race really well? It goes on to describe the impact that this great cloud of witnesses can have and what we gain from them, even in thinking about them. It says, let us, because of that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So, coached by the greats kind of leaves us with this idea that there also is a desire in each one of us to be great, isn't there? We all want to be great in some way. However we define that, we may define it different ways. But this passage today actually throws a kink, I think, into the way that we tend to normally think about greatness that we really need to wrestle with. Because if we think about this passage and looking at these heroes of the faith like we think about today, then what we're going to walk away from each week is the lesson being we're supposed to be like Coach K or we're supposed to be like Michael Jordan, right, for lack of a better illustration. And, and what that leads us to is hopelessness and despair. Because every single one of us knows we can't be like Coach K. And I, no, no matter, and even though I played sports all my life, no matter how much I practiced, no matter how hard I worked, I was never going to be Michael Jordan. See, if we approach the greats of the Bible in that same way, they will be completely unrelatable to us. And if we filter our grid of greatness over them in that way, they will also be well beyond us. And it will become disillusioning to us. We won't be able to be the inspiring great people that God is actually inviting us to be because the invitation of this passage is indeed that God wants each and every one of us to be great, one of these greats of faith. He wants you to be a great, and that's his plan for you. That's his invitation for you to throw off everything that hinders and run the race toward perfection. So how do we make this exploration of these people something that works for us, something that makes this accessible, something that actually makes a real meaningful difference in our life. It describes faith this way. Faith is something not yet realized. While at the same time, it's something that focuses us. It's something that motivates us. It's something that causes us to move in a direction, right? But Hebrews doesn't place the idea of greatness of faith in the idea of what we achieve 
in life. It says these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Now, it's not that they didn't receive anything, right? Abraham received Isaac. David received the expansion of a great kingdom. And they realized at least in part, maybe to a large extent, a lot of the promise and dream God had for them in life. But there was something greater promised to them that was really the focus of their greatness. And then the writer reemphasizes that greatness of faith focused for them was really the focus of promise. They had faith in the promise of God. And even though Jesus hadn't come yet, they really actually were great because they had faith in the gospel and the promise of Jesus. See, though the realization for each one of them of that promise was incomplete, just as it's incomplete for us in our life, right? The promise of the redemption, the promise of everything we hope for is incomplete in our life, just like theirs. There was still great valuable lessons of faith that they teach us. And it was all focused on the gospel. And really it comes down to this. It's because they're all just like us. They're not any different than you and I, the people we're going to explore in this series. I mean, this text essentially says to us, there are many great people, but there's only one hero. And that one hero is Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And The invitation is for each one of us to live in that kind of great faith that fixes our eyes on the one hero of all. There are so many greats, and you are invited to be one of them, but there's only one hero. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, Ross, that's just a really simple point. It's kind of obvious, right? That's kind of one of those duh points. But even as obvious as it is, our struggles and our difficulty in understanding the Bible often betray the fact that we don't really get this lesson well in life. We don't get this simple point down because we tend to read these great people listed in Hebrews 11, these Old Testament people, that we, these great characters, even from Sunday school, we tend to read them as being examples of how we should behave, how we should believe, how we should think. And the problem with that is it makes understanding the Bible really difficult because when we try to moralize each one of these people's lives and just reduce their greatness to a set of principles of moral faith or leadership principles, that if we do them, we also will be great. When we moralize them like that, it just it becomes difficult to live up to those morals for one. And also because when we look at these people, sometimes we question, were they really that great morally? Because they have some pretty huge flaws. And we end up leaving the Bible being disillusioned because some of the Hebrews 11 people mentioned are not so morally hot. So the key question comes down, what is the Bible basically about? Is the Bible about you and how you should live primarily? Or is the Bible primarily about Jesus? Is the Bible humanity's story of trying to get to God and what is required to get to God? Or is it the story of God? Hebrews 12 already betrays the answer to that in saying it's really the story about Jesus. It's fixing our eyes on Him. 
And Jesus makes that point even more pointedly in Luke 24. It's this uh, amazing account of Jesus right after the resurrection. He encounters two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't know yet that he's actually risen. They've heard rumors that he might be, but none of their friends have seen him yet. And the story picks up in verse 15 saying this. It says, as they talked and discussed these things, each with each other, Jesus himself came and walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the one, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet and powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And yet the chief priests, our rulers, handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. And some of the women have amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. And they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And then he, Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. In other words, what he's saying here is beginning with the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end of the Bible, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And the point is that all scripture points to Jesus. He's the one and only hero of the faith. The Bible, first and foremost, is not the story of man trying to get to God. It's not the story of great people's principles that we're to emulate, although there are those principles, just like we can study anybody in history and find great principles that we we may want to emulate. The Bible is about the good news of God loving us, about the patience of God and the pursuit of God to rescue us and come to us in our brokenness and bring healing. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel. And gospel actually means good news. You see, when you read any part of the Bible, whether it's creation or whether it's the fall or whether it's Noah or Samson or David or whether it's the Jewish temple rituals or the Old Testament law, you cannot understand them apart from Jesus. You see, it's easy to read the Bible and look at the great stories and see Samson and Delilah and go, well, the moral of the story there is don't compromise. And the moral of the story there is that sexual temptation is so powerful that it could make even the best of people to compromise, right? Or we could look at the story of David and Bathsheba and say, well, the moral of the story there is don't commit adultery because it has not only bad ramifications for your own relationships, but it affects generations of people after you in negative ways. Or we could talk about Daniel and the moral of the story there is uncompromising courage. And it's easy just to make the lessons of these great Bible characters about good morals. But what Jesus is teaching the guys on the road to Emmaus and trying to teach us today is that it's possible to read and study the Bible. It's possible to memorize large portions of the Bible and study all sorts of theology while missing the entire point of the Bible. You see, these two guys, they were familiar with the Bible. 
They were Jewish Bible readers. They knew their Bibles. They had memorized tons of it. They knew it all backwards and forwards. And yet as they were walking along the road, they were sad and dejected. They were down because even though they knew their Bibles, they didn't know what it was about. You see, it's possible to read your Bible for your entire life and miss the story that it's really about. And if you miss that the Bible is a story of God and specifically the story of Jesus, you will be like these two biblically well-educated travelers who spent three years of their life in church with Jesus and didn't have a clue what it was all about. And they were left, they were left confused. See, more specifically, let's, let's take that a step further. These guys along Emmaus, look at what they said in verse 21. He says, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What are they saying there? They're saying basically this. They're saying that hey, about a week ago, guy, as they're talking to Jesus, not realizing it's him, this guy named Jesus entered Jerusalem and to all this fanfare. Everybody was excited. We thought this was the guy who was going to bring all of our dreams to pass. And the, the religious Pharisees were trying to trick him, and, and he just confounded them all week. He was untouchable. But somehow, somehow they falsely accused him, arrested him, and put him to death. And that dashed our hopes for us to ever be what we thought we wanted to be. You see, they were reading the times they were living in and they were reading the Bible as if the story was about them to fulfill their dreams, to fulfill their purpose, to fulfill their wishes for happiness, to, to restore their rightful place to what they felt like God had promised for them. To them, the Bible was a prescription manual. It was a self-help book on how to please God and how to live well and how to be prosperous in life. And Jesus says, no, don't you see? The book is not about you. The book is about me. It's about God's story, not man's story. It's about God's goodness and his initiation, as the Hebrews 12 passage says, his pioneering of the way for us, his initiation towards us. It's about God's holiness and about God's perfection of the way. You see, that changes the way we read things. I mean, think about one of the greats mentioned in Hebrews 11. There's a guy named Jephthah who you may or may not be really familiar with. You can read a story in Judges 10 and 12 if you want later today. But Jephthah is this great judge of Israel who's listed as a great of faith, and he makes this foolish vow to God. He's kind of this hard, crusty guy. He's initially a guy that uh, was kind of cast out from the community because, uh, well, just maybe the church didn't treat him nicely. And But he becomes this great leader. He makes this foolish vow, and then he keeps the vow. And by keeping the vow, it meant he had to sacrifice, meaning kill his daughter. And if I read that story, and I read it as though it's about me, and I'm supposed to emulate this great guy, I'm frankly offended. I'm confused. I can't believe God that, would, that God would ever ask that or allow that, much less list somebody who did that as great. But when I read the story as God's story, I see God's extreme patience. I see God, even with a thick-headed, crusty, hardened, foolish person, showing kindness and patience. Jephthah violates one of the laws of God. He, he kills someone. But his heart is right in it, and for some reason God looks beyond his bad actions and looks at his heart 
and responds to his heart with kindness and tenderness and patience, actually turning a horrible situation into one with lasting positive meaning for Israel, if you read the whole story. You see, reading Jephthah's story as a story of the gospel makes our application point from that completely change. That no matter how ignorant you are, no matter how crusty and hard life has made you to be because of the hard knocks and the pain you've had or the sin you've been involved with, and no matter what actions you've done, even if you've done some horrible things in your life thinking they were right, thinking you were doing what God wanted you to do, went into it with a good heart. That contrary to how you think now because of the pain you've created, you think God's angry with you. You think God has disappointed you and you think you can never overcome that. But the whole time God's been looking at your heart going, I love your heart. I love your heart. And he's been looking at you with patience and kindness and smiling at you and wanting to extend and make you experience fully the forgiveness he's already bought for you. You see, the story is God's story. It's a story of good news. It's a story of forgiveness. It's a story of promise. And that's the message that some of you need to hear today because there are aspects of your life you're frankly really embarrassed about because you did some things, even maybe did some things that you thought were the right thing to do that turned out horrible. They turned out to be painful for you. They turned out to be painful for other people. And you've had a really hard time dealing with your faith because of that. And God's saying, I see your heart. And I love your heart. And I love you. There's a second lesson we're going to get today as we get into this series. It's a lesson that's given to us by the first great man in all of the Bible. And it actually points to Jesus, the one true hero as well. And unless we get this lesson, we'll still struggle with this idea of greatness. And we'll still struggle with this idea of thinking the greats are beyond us. It's the story of the very first greats in the Bible, Adam and Eve. Now, some of you are going, um, Ross, I thought we were talking about great people. Not the people who messed it all up for the rest of us, right? None of us would think Adam is worth copying, right? None of us would think that. But the truth is, we don't need to make Adam into somebody great for us to want to emulate. We already emulate him all the time anyway. We are so much like him in every way. In fact, everyone who has ever lived since Adam, the Bible talks about as being in Adam. Adam is the perfect representation of humankind. So let's go back to that story. It's in the very beginning of Genesis, and we'll review. We'll we'll pick it up here in a minute in Genesis 3, but let's review what happened up to that point, right? Up to that point, before the fall of mankind, before sin entered, creation is perfect. It's wonderful. It's everything you have ever dreamed of and longed for in life. Every creation is hitting on every cylinder. Everything is in such harmony. It's just absolutely wonderful. And then Something terrible happens. And we pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent, the serpent in this instance is a manifestation of the devil or Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, God had set up everything that was healthy and good. There was abundance all around them of absolutely everything they could ever want, but there was one thing they couldn't do. And Satan focuses the temptation for them and for us many times on that one thing we can't do. And we even joke about this, right? We talk about it in parenting. If you tell your kids you can do all this, but you can't do that, what are they going to want to do, right? We joke about this. This is something we know to be true. The woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent says to the woman, you will certainly not die. See what's going on here? There's this questioning. Really? Are you certain that what God told you is true? And there's beginning the seed of doubting God's intent toward us. And it goes on. It says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. See what's going on here? She's actively doubting the fact that God has provided all the wisdom they need, every provision they need for life already, actively doubting that that's there. And actually that leads to one of the Bible's recurring themes, that our pursuit of wisdom so often is just foolishness and not true wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then listen to this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And see, that's a great description of life from birth on since that time to today. We're trying to live life covering up our nakedness. We're trying to manage our own image, to justify ourselves, to hide our shame and put forward the good look that we want or whatever. We spend so much time trying to justify and save ourselves. And in our wisdom, we have allowed ourselves to become the judge of God and His intent. We become the judge of what is right and wrong. And we argue with God over that. We, we know we become the judge of knowing what love is. Uh, we need to know good and evil ourselves. We are not satisfied not knowing it. We, and one of the reasons we have difficulty, actually, in our search of finding God and being people of faith is because we spend so much of our time doubting God's good intent and questioning Him. Now, historically, we talk about this section of the Bible as the fall of man, the fall of humankind. But the term is actually kind of deceptive. There's actually a lot of people out there who refer to it as an upward fall because humankind ventured out of their realm into the place of God. It's not like we tripped and fell and debased ourselves and had, had a failure. It's like we instead rose up in pride to become like God, questioning, did God really say this? Does he really mean it? Or is he just saying this to protect his own turf or because he's an insecure uh, insecure God? Or is he just saying this because he wants to withhold something good from us because he really wants us to pay some sort of price before we ever get anything good? And we question things like, is God's intent really good for us in his commands about sex? Or is he unreasonably withholding something good from us? Or we question, is God's intent really good in how he commands us to handle money and to be generous givers? Or is he really just making us do with less than we could have? My daughter, Elise, is a senior and she's applying for colleges and she finished writing an essay this last week for a college scholarship and she chose to uh, write her research paper for the for this scholarship on what causes happiness, the current research out there on what causes happiness. And it's really fascinating to read it. Uh, did, you, uh, did you know that what research identifies as one of the single greatest uh, influences that create happiness in us that lasts longer than anything else in life is philanthropic acts. 
being generous, giving generously of our money, giving generously of our service and our kindness. Yet we don't trust God's intent in his words around those commands all too often, do we? The Bible instructs us to give thanks always and to express worship on all occasions. And the research along with philanthropic acts said that the two biggest things to create lasting happiness in your life are giving generously and practicing gratitude regularly. And if you do those two things, you will experience higher levels of happiness than almost anybody out there. God's intentions are good. Paul ties this whole discussion of Adam and Eve together in Romans 5. He says this. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. See, Paul is saying there is no one whom we emulate more than our Adam and Eve. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned until today, we have been copying them, burdening ourselves with self-salvation projects, trying to get our image, trying to get our happiness, trying to get our peace to where we want, pursuing things and people to give us security and meaning. In fact, we come into the world before we even hear the story, before we can even comprehend the story, we are trying to emulate or we are emulating Adam and Eve. I mean, just look at babies. I mean, if you're around babies from like day one, they're what? Demanding things be the way they want and they're the judge of what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. And and even before they can roll over, we see obstinance and we see all sorts of things about judging coming out from them. We are emulating Adam from the very beginning. But there's actually one other thing that this whole point brings up, and it actually comes out to a bone that we often pick with God. And it comes down to this. What do you mean? We say, because Adam sinned, we all sinned? That's blatantly unfair, right? I mean, we're Americans. I demand no damnation without representation, right? I mean, we got to have representation in this. How can somebody else sin and we pay the price, right? And then we say things like, if I had been in the garden... I wouldn't have eaten of the forbidden fruit. I would have been satisfied with the abundance, right? There's plenty of it around. I wouldn't have paid attention to that. One little thing, kind of like today, if I just had more, if I just had more money or if I just had a better job or if I just had uh, better friends or if I just had the wife or husband that this person has or whatever more that we describe as if I just had more life would be easier I would be better it would be happier or we make arguments like this we make arguments saying if I were Adam and I was married to Eve and she ate the fruit I'd say sayonara baby I'm not going down that rat hole with you God can take another rib of mine and create another woman for me that's fine right I mean we argue like that in our minds we're not going to take the stuff I'm not going to give up perfection for you. We struggle with the idea that one couple can blow it and all of us have to suffer the consequences. But God chose Adam as the founding representative of the entire human race. And a guy named Tulian Chavidian, who's actually the grandson of Billy Graham, which is an easier name to say and spell, puts it this way. There's no time in human history when you and I were more perfectly represented than in the Garden of Eden. Adam was chosen perfectly by a perfect God, an infallible choice. And what that means, 
What that means is every single one of us would have done the exact same thing Adam did. Proof that we would have chosen exactly as Adam chose is found in the fact that we are all addicted to saving ourselves. We try to save ourselves through becoming great, through marriage, through looking good, through gaining approval or winning. And under all those efforts is you and I trying to validate ourselves, right? All of us struggle with this. I do. I mean, I'm trying in my faith to get to the point where I'm completely so uh, filled by the knowledge of the love of God that I don't need outside things to validate me. And I can then enjoy people and circumstances regardless of what's going on. But the fact of the matter is none of us get there fully. There are still many days and still many times within days, right? When things don't go well in your job, like, you know, maybe I go home some days on Sundays and I go, I didn't preach very well today. And our, our church isn't growing fast enough. I start questioning God or questioning myself and trying to seek validation. Or there are days when my fantastic kids are going through a normal challenge and I find myself struggling with inner self-talk saying, man, I'm just not a good enough parent because if I was a better parent, they wouldn't be struggling with this, right? And you, you go there too or there's times I think about, oh man, if I just discipline myself, what about health? If I just did this better, I'd feel better about myself. I'd be, all these things reveal what we're depending on for validation in life. They reveal our self-salvation projects we're focused on, where we're not trusting God. You see, the sin of Adam and Eve falling upward into what we think is wisdom and freedom is really foolishness and slavery to sin and a drivenness to have to validate ourselves. We are all so much like Adam and Eve. And every great person of the faith that we're going to look at is perfectly represented by Adam as well, just like you and I. They are no different than you and I. They are ordinary, sometimes even horrible people who have become greats of the faith. And the good news is that many of the greats, though though there are many greats of which you are invited to be one of them, there's only one hero. Paul compares Adam and Jesus in Romans 5. He says this. He says, The judgment followed one sin, Adam's sin, and brought condemnation. But the gift of Christ followed many trespasses and brought justification. For just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. See, Jesus is the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Abraham. He's the true and better Moses. He's the true and better Noah. Of all the stories that we're going to look like, he is the focus of the entire Bible. It is his promise, his promise of undying, undeniable, indomitably pursuing love that is the focus of the story of the Bible and the focus of our faith. Gerhard Ford, a renowned Lutheran theologian of the 20th century, talks about the fall and redemption of mankind this way. And worship team, you can come on up. He says, through the story of the fall and redemption of mankind, the gospel is sometimes presented to people as a program that will empower them to exercise their free will and climb the heights of morality where Adam failed. The problem is that this attempt at climbing is a manifestation of the very sin we are redeemed from. To avoid the implication that what we as sinners really need is climbing lessons, We need to understand the difference between what makes the greats of faith great 
and the one true hero of the Bible of all of human history, Jesus. See, faith in the promise of God, in the gospel, faith in Jesus, even before that first Christmas, is what made these men and women great. But the only hero is the one on whom we fix our gaze, Jesus. And along the way, as we continue this series, we're going to learn some fantastic lessons about God's patience and be inspired by some moments of how faithful and how generous and how kind He can be. And we're going to be inspired by how each of these men and women discovered a way in the difficulties and sometimes just in the, frankly, boredom and ordinariness of life, learned to live a life focused on the promise of the gospel even before that first Christmas, their faith, thereby saving them. So today, as we close, if you find yourself, even as I'm talking, recognizing how you've been falling prey to self-salvation talks in your own mind, how you've been trying to, trying to validate your own self instead of just coming and having faith in the promise, the invitation for you today is to just, just as we continue to worship here, to just acknowledge that. And say, God, sorry. And then just say, God, I'm so grateful for your love. I'm so grateful for who you are. I'm so grateful for the people around me you've blessed me with. And just give him thanks and give him worship as we continue. If you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to the one true hero, Jesus, you just haven't made that step. Instead, you've been caught up in the treadmill of life where you're constantly driven, feeling just just short feeling like you never quite are good enough, feeling like you can never quite be free of that shame and guilt and wishing you could be, you're never going to experience that freedom until you surrender to the one true hero, Jesus. And that's just as simple as saying, hey, God, I'm going to take myself off the throne of my life. I'm going I'm to stop being God. I'm going to stop judging you. I'm going to trust your intent, and I'm going to follow you today. You can say that however you want in your own words, and Jesus will come to you. He'll save you, and He'll walk with you and give you His Holy Spirit. And each day, you will progress in learning to live in that place of deep acceptance and the promise every day. Lord, we're just grateful for Your presence today. Thank You. Thank You that we have this great cloud of witnesses that we have, that we can learn about throughout this series. But Lord, thank You most of all that You are the one true hero. Lord, I pray that you just come and continue to make yourself and your love and your patience and your kindness, your forgiveness, your belief in us, your undying, undying belief in who you created us to be. That that would become a reality and we would trust you in that. That we would place our faith in you daily in that. And Lord, for those here who may be doing that for the first time, I pray that your spirit would come now and you would fill them. They would experience your presence and be drawn to you. Lord, that they'd be able to get off that treadmill and find the rest and the peace you want to give them. In Jesus' name, amen. Just join in worship now. Yeah. He does say, and that's the point of the entire message of the Bible. If you uh, are here today, I felt like God may be saying in that last song, some of you are here are mourning some stuff. And uh, God wants to touch that. 
and he wants to touch it through prayer. So I want to encourage you to get prayer before you leave from somebody, whether it's a friend next door or whether you've joined one of the people praying in the back after service here. Just get prayer for that. And if you are here with any other need, physical healing, any other thing going on in your life, we would absolutely love to pray for you. Uh, as an application for today, there are a few of these left in the lobby. I should have ordered more. Uh, they got taken. Uh, so this is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, this is for you with kids, and this is for you even if you don't have kids. Uh, one of the things we struggle with, as we talked about in the message, is really understanding the Bible. And this is a fantastic resource for understanding how Jesus is the center of every story in the Bible and how he is the one that every story points to. In fact, uh, Tulian Chavidian, who pastors a large megachurch, actually says he reads this before he does a message. So uh, if you would like this for you and your kids, there are several copies still available out there. If you would like this because you've struggled with understanding the Bible uh, and you're an adult, don't be ashamed. Take one, read it. Uh, if you have the money to pay for it, you can go to the cafe and pay 11 bucks for it. If you don't have the money, take one, okay? Um, if we run out and they're not there, we will put this on our web page for purchase at our Amazon store. Uh, by the middle of the week, and you can come find it there easily. So God bless. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.